The last time I saw Ikundu the lion, he was napping. The Honolulu Zoo had just opened after the shutdown, and it was wonderful to think that we could visit the the zoo safely. But we recently learned that two of our big cats tested positive for COVID. And last week, Ikundu, our only male lion who suffered from epilepsy, died. So what now? What additional precautions can we take to protect our zoo animals, our zoo residents? We talked to Honolulu Zoo Director Linda Santos this morning. Anytime we have an animal that shows any kind of symptoms that could be a symptom that COVID has as well, we, we start testing right away, just to be sure. And um, our staff was able to get vaccinated um, as essential workers. So a lot of them started getting vaccinated in, um, I think it was around March or April. And um, we have some really strict protocols in place since the beginning of the pandemic, no, because we're animal people and, you know, there's a lot of zoonotic diseases out there. So we're always prepared for that. And so knowing how contagious the SARS-CoV-2 virus actually is, our vet staff immediately put into place um, some strict protocols for these high-risk areas, which mainly was cats, dogs, and uh, non-human primates. So they had to wear um, procedural masks, and if an animal um, showed signs of not looking well, we switched to um, higher protection, um, N95 mask. Um, in some cases, uh, they have to wear a face shield. We always wear gloves. Um, you know, so there's, there's all these protocols in place to protect our animals and to protect the staff from each other. Um, we're not always able to social distance, so um, they pretty much live in gear throughout their work shift. Um, And uh, we are hoping that soon we'll be able to also get the vaccine for our animals as another layer of protection. So is it still a mystery as to how the cats came down with COVID? Yes, it is. We're, We're not sure. I mean, in zoos, Mainly, it's been an asymptomatic keeper, someone who hasn't shown signs despite wearing all the proper PPE. Um, It seems that somehow there's been spread of COVID amongst different types of um, cats and zoos, mainly cats, but I've seen other animals as well, um, like gorillas and so forth. So it's not... PPE, your protection is not 100%, you know, it's just there and there's that slight chance that you still can pass it on to one another or um, the animal. And is the staff tested regularly anyway, even though they're all vaccinated? uh, Yeah, so our staff voluntarily gets tested. And since the lion was um, a positive they're getting tested. Uh, some of them went and got tested weekly. Okay, so that that's being stepped up? Yeah, you know, to ensure that we're not passing it on to other animals. 
And what can you tell us about the vaccines for zoo animals? I mean, are we already in the queue for our share? We are in the queue. We did reach out to the company that manufactures the animal vaccinations. It is an experimental drug, just like the COVID drug was for humans, so it's not been approved. So in order to get it into the state, there's some permits and different hoops to jump through. You know, I believe they have to get approval from USDA to bring it in. We have to provide a list of animals that we plan to vaccinate. So there's that. And so we're in the queue waiting to hear back. Any idea how soon it might be? You know, because I've seen stories where, you know, they're vaccinating cats, I think, in Washington, D.C., you know, other zoos around the country. Yeah, I think there's been over 70 something zoos now that have received the vaccine for animals. And, um, you know, it's supply and demand. Uh, It's one of those situations where you're on a list and you're waiting to to get um, the vaccine. So we are on the list and hopefully we'll get it anytime soon. When did we apply? Months ago. It's it's been a while. Everybody was kind of shocked, you know, to hear about these two cats coming down with with COVID. And, you know, and I understand that, uh, you know, you were at the zoo when we first got Ikundu. So Ikundu is a very special cat. And when he arrived, I got him off the truck with the forklift and moved his crate over to the lion house so we could let him out of his shipping crate into the facility there. So I remember um, when he was very young, when he first came in. And, you know, I just saw him at the zoo uh, when I visited, you know, when the restrictions were lifted and we we got to go into uh, the zoo facility. And it really felt good to be able to be out there, you know, but we were thinking, you know, it was safe. Uh, And so you just never know how these animals are you know, going to contract this virus. Yeah, you never know. And with our lion, he also had an underlying um, medical condition that we've been managing for over five years. So he became epileptic. Um, We're not sure the cause of that. We're hoping that his necropsy will shed some light on the real cause of his death and um, the role COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 played in his um, passing. Um, So we're hoping to learn a lot from this, you know, so we know if there's something we need to change in our protocol, something we need to provide. So our vet staff's working really hard to make sure they collected all the right samples, send it out to the right labs, and hopefully we can get some information back that will be very helpful. And his friend, Moxie, how's she doing? Moxie's doing much better. You know, she's she and Ikundu had bonded. They had three cubs together, I think, somewhere back in 2012. Um, they are now in other zoos for breeding. And, you know, she's she's got tested positive for COVID, but she doesn't have any of the severe symptoms that we saw in Ikundu. So she's just being managed with supportive care. She's still eating. Um, she was out on exhibit sunbathing in her favorite spot yesterday. So people were looking at her. You know, so far she's hanging in there and she's she's looking good. So I'm sure she must be sad. 
because, you know, Ikundu's not around. Yeah. And the last time I saw them, they were kind of snuggled up together napping. Yeah, they're they're a couple, you know, so uh, it's a pair. I'm sure she knows that he's expired because she lives in the same cat house. Uh, we did have them separate it, but they still had visual and audio contact with each other before he expired. So, mm. you know, I'm, I'm sure she realizes. Uh, but animals, you know, they're very resilient and... Even though I know there's a grieving process, I think they recover really quickly. So what can you share with us? I mean, who will be on the priority list when we do get this vaccine? Um, You know, will uh, Violet and uh, Rusty be on that list? Yes. So all the non-human primates, cat, the hunting dogs, you know, those are the high-risk animals that you would see normally that would be exposed to the SARS-CoV-2. So those are the priorities. The good thing is our staff is some animals are already trained to accept injections, including the lions. And some of the non-human primates also accept injections where they participate and letting you know when it's okay to poke them. And, you know, so that'll make the process a lot easier. And the staff has the challenge of working with the more difficult animals who don't like to participate in injection training. <laughs> yeah, so there, there may be some uh, shot-hesitant <laughs> animals. I understand that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I forgot to ask if our favorite longtime resident orangutans, Rusty and Violet, were okay with shots. But uh, we did ask Santos about the missing hornbill, Najima. Uh, the bird flew the coop after a branch fell and damaged its aviary a couple of years ago. Santos said w- while there were a few credible sightings right after his escape, pictures taken at the time show that he may have been hurt during the tree fall and may have succumbed to his injuries. But they would like to think that he is out there flying free. In this week's Manu Minute, where's that laugh coming from? Well, today we hear the song of a game bird, something called Urkel's Franklin. But if you ask us, its song is really more of a cackle. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. Urkel's Franklins are plump, partridge-like birds with a distinctive chestnut-colored cap on their head and chestnut-streaked feathers on their chest and back. They're about 16 inches long and weigh a little more than 2 pounds. Originally from the Ethiopia region of Africa, Hawaii is the only other place in the world they're found in the wild, as they were introduced as a game bird here in the 1950s to 60s. They can be seen on Oahu, Kauai, and the Big Island, where they've become very common, especially in higher elevation grasslands and shrublands. If you hear a loud, laughing cackle, but there's no people around, there's a good chance there's an Urkel's Franklin nearby. (laughs) Urkel's Franklins are similar to chickens in that they spend most of their time on the ground and also prefer to run rather than fly. Also like chickens, the females lay a large clutch of eggs in a nest on the ground. And when the young hatch, they're already covered with feathers and are ready to forage on their own. 
A recent study from Oahu showed that they love to consume a variety of fruits from both native and non-native plant species and are likely spreading a variety of invasive plants such as vivee, blackberry, and clydemia into our native forests. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your next, your backyard quiz. Onihoa. Multiple people with the same name. That's what's on tap for today's Backyard Quiz. With the billions of people on this planet, we know what happens. We had two presidents with the same name. And speaking of presidents, HPR's president and general manager, Jose Fajardo, will be joining us for a live interview later in the show. But we did some research to see if there were other well-known people with his name and found two. Jose Antonio Fajardo was born in 1919 and was a flautist who played the five-keyed wooden flute. He was born in Pinar del Rio, Cuba. Jose Fajardo Nelson is currently a professional soccer player for 9 de Octubre. He hails from Panama. As for our own Jose Fajardo, you probably know he joined us from WMFE in Orlando. But what we want to know for today's Backyard Quiz is, do you know where Ho- HBR's Jose Fajardo grew up? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. It's a seller's market, and we're not talking real estate. We're talking boats, or rather yachts. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton on the line today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So yachts, huh? What got you poking around there? Well, we was poking around on, on some on some stuff, and uh, we discovered that uh, the yacht uh, business is similar to housing right now it's a hot market and um, a lot of people uh, want want a, a, a sailing yacht the, here in Hawaii it's sort of the equivalent of uh, RVs or recreational vehicles on the mainland people want a uh, vehicle or want something where they can climb aboard and kind of get away from it all get away from it all socially distance and uh, maybe go somewhere yeah so they want to uh get on a boat and uh, have an adventure. 
Yeah, get on a boat, have an adventure, go to a neighbor island maybe, uh, cruise around, sleep somewhere. Again, you don't have to be around people. You don't have to get on a plane. Uh, seems very appealing, and it, and it is a huge market right now. Yeah, so this is just something that's happening around the world. It is happening around the world, and that's the thing. When we looked at some of the industry numbers in general, in 2021 for the first quarter, it, it's sales were up uh, globally like 45%, um, according to uh, people who track these things. So, um, again, brokers are doing very well. Um, sellers are doing well. Uh, in, in the past, I think it, people would be able to negotiate more, down more. Now there's still some wiggle room, it sounds like, but not a whole lot. Well, I guess people, though, just want to get as far as way, get a far get as far away as possible from the maddening crowds, right? Get away from COVID. Yeah, that, se- that seems to be it. And, and it's, again, it, it's such that um, you have a lot of first-time buyers, again, according to the industry news and according to the um, anecdotes we talk about, uh, that we hear from people. A lot of people are getting in for the first time buying these yachts. In some cases, it's not necessarily uh, going to be the great greatest thing. They might get more boat than they can handle and and it could create problems down the line but again the market's so big uh, we talked to the one person we talked to he he has a yacht already and and he bought another one before selling the one he owned just because the one he saw was so good and and such a rarity these days that he had to jump on it and pounce on it and and buy it um, almost for what the seller was asking for um, even though he still got another boat to unload well, I imagine, though, if you've got a lot of first-time buyers, there are folks that might get in over their heads. They don't know what they're in for. Well, yeah, that seems to be one of the issues. And uh, we spoke to one uh, person named Todd Duff. He, he's not here in Hawaii, although he spent a fair amount of time here. Um, but he was, at the time, in Virginia, where he had just bought a boat, and he was fixing it up to go down to the Caribbean. Anyway, he said that uh, the one of the biggest pitfalls is people – uh, downsize. They think, oh, I'm, I have a house and I'm going to sell it and move onto a boat and buy a yacht. And so they get something pretty big and they're told, oh, you can handle this maybe with two people because there's a lot of automated equipment and things that, that don't require a big crew to, to deal with. Uh, but then something breaks and suddenly uh, they're really out of luck. So yes, it's definitely something that happens. People are ending up, we're told, uh, one of the biggest pitfalls is people get more boat than they they can deal with, and then they end up just sitting around in it, uh, not really sailing it. Yeah, and then I I imagine too that there are folks that, you know, if you, let's say, uh, get a vessel here or or in California or wherever, you've got to get uh, someone to ferry it across or sail it yourself. Well, right, yes, that's it. And, And what we're told is Hawaii used to be a relative bargain for that reason. Uh, that if, if you wanted to, if you bought something here, you would have to either sail it yourself and you could get a bargain for it because you could sail it yourself across the ocean or have it delivered, which is going to cost you money. So Hawaii, apparently, we're told, used to be something of a bargain uh, because there was a limited market, but apparently these days that's no longer the case. Yeah, seller's market, really interesting. Thank, <laughs> thanks so much, Stuart. Uh, thank you, Catherine. All right, hopefully we see you out on the water. <laughs> <laughs> That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. To read his stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from Parker School in Waimea on Hawaii Island, committed to knowing, valuing, and nurturing each student, with a virtual open house this Saturday, October 23rd. Details and registration at parkerschoolhawaii.org. Billy Joe Johnson was a son. He started walking when he was nine months old. A friend. You can't compare nobody to Billy. And a star football player. Everybody looks like they're running in slow motion except one guy, Billy Joe. His death is the story of what justice means in America on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Mike Mark's Cafe. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, is a progressive neurodegenerative disease affecting thousands across the U.S. and hundreds here in Hawaii. You may have heard it referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease. The Golden West chapter of the ALS Association provides services to those living with the disease in our state and their caretakers. To raise the money needed to fund those services, the chapter is holding its walk to defeat ALS this Saturday. The Conversations, Russell Subiano sat down with the chapter's president and CEO, Fred Fisher, to better understand the disease. People of my generation or older, we know ALS as Lou Gehrig's disease. But as time has gone on, I kind of sense a shift that it is being now more commonly referred to as ALS. For those in our audience who may not be familiar with what ALS is, can you share what it is, how it affects the body? The main change so to speak, really coincided with the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. And many people, although they may not have participated in that, knew it as the Ice Bucket Challenge or the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge and started referring to it as ALS, not so much Lou Gehrig's disease. And the interesting thing about Gehrig is, you know, he was young when he got diagnosed with ALS, younger than the average He was 35, uh, I think, when he got diagnosed, and he only lived with ALS for a few years, and nobody really saw him go through the progression. And so whether you say ALS or whether you say Lou Gehrig's disease, chances are, unless people know someone directly connected to it, they don't know what it is. And so the short version is ALS is a neurodegenerative disease. It starts in the brain. And the motor neurons, which connect the brain to muscles, as those motor neurons start to die, the brain loses its ability to connect to our voluntary muscles. And so typically over a period of two to five years, although there are outliers in both directions in terms of some people live much shorter lives, some people live much, much longer lives, but most people, it's a two to five year journey with the disease over which time they lose the ability to speak, to swallow, to move, and to breathe because all the muscles that are required to do those things are voluntary. And as motor neurons die, people lose the ability to use those muscles. So it's a really devastating diagnosis. And as the disease progresses, it's important to respond to that progression to keep people functioning at the highest level possible, keep their quality of life up, keep their engagement in the community up. And the challenging thing about ALS, besides the symptom expression, is it can be difficult to diagnose. It's not something that you can detect with a blood test, let's say. 
and it's what's known as a rule-out diagnosis. So a neurologist will try to find some other explanation for the symptoms that they're seeing, and when there are no other reasonable answers, the diagnosis is ALS. So it takes someone with a lot of expertise to diagnose ALS. And what else also makes it challenging is it doesn't start the same way from one person to another. One person, it might start with a trip and a fall because of a dropped foot. Another person, they might be losing dexterity in their hands. Another person might experience slurred speech as the first symptom or, or difficulty swallowing or shortness of breath. So it's a challenging diagnosis. It's a challenging disease. Is ALS something that is inherited? Does it affect a certain age range or does it kind of just happen without very much explanation? So in most people, it just happens. There are families that we're serving in Hawaii where they've had many family members get ALS. And for those people, they can undergo genetic testing to find out which gene mutation they have. There are currently 50, five zero, known gene mutations that are associated with ALS. And that means, number one, ALS is very complicated and not always caused by the same thing. Number two, those gene mutations give us a target for gene therapies, which are currently in development. But for 80 to 90% of the people who get ALS, there's no prior family history of it. The median age of people who get ALS is 50 years old. This is important in Hawaii in terms of risk factors because the population in Hawaii is more than 50% are over the age of 50, which puts them in that risk group. And generally speaking, adults have a one in 400 risk of getting ALS in their lifetime. And so there are many, many people at risk of ALS, but due to the relatively short lifespan of people, once they get it, unlike other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease, where people live much, much longer, the lifespan of a person with ALS is typically two to five years, and it typically strikes people in the prime of their lives. Earlier, you were talking about resources that are available through the Golden West chapter of the ALS Association to help those living with ALS here in Hawaii and, and their caretakers. Can you talk a little bit more about what types of resources are available? Our goal is to provide every family living with ALS with concierge service and support. And what that means is connecting people to the best medical care. When we started in Hawaii, it was very difficult to connect people to the medical resources they needed. ALS, because it affects your ability to move, speak, swallow, breathe, that means there are a number of different medical disciplines that come into play. And so we really worked to develop a whole cohort of professionals in those different disciplines that work in a seamlessly integrated way through our multidisciplinary clinic model. We established that model in partnerships with with Kaiser Permanente in Hawaii. Also, we've been working with Queens Hospital in Honolulu 
to make sure that people with ALS have the medical expertise they need. Then there's the equipment needs that they need. When you when you start losing the ability to walk, we want to make sure people are safe. We want to make sure that they can still get around. And so whether it's going from a cane to a walker to a scooter to a big power wheelchair, we want to make sure that everyone has access to those devices. And we have an equipment loan program located on Oahu, Kauai, Maui, and the Big Island so that people with ALS there can have access to the equipment they need. We also have support groups for, for caregivers as well as people living with ALS, and people throughout the state can access those support groups online. During the pandemic, everything we did switched to a virtual model, which made it really easy. But even before the pandemic, we had support groups happening throughout the state, a loan closet happening throughout the state, And the key to all of this is the care managers that are employees of the Golden West chapter that are assigned to every single family, helping them manage the progression of the disease on a day-by-day basis. ALS can change very quickly, and our care managers know our families well. They know where they are in the progression of the disease. They can anticipate what's coming next and they can have services lined up and respond when the family needs them. So our care management services throughout the state, our support groups throughout the state, our free loan program of equipment, as well as educational programs to to help people understand the nature of the disease, help people understand what's going on with research. Those are all things that are available to everyone in Hawaii. From what I can tell, there's no cure for ALS. So what does the future look like for those living with the condition? What kind of research is going on? What kind of new technology or treatments are on the horizon? There's more research going on now than at any time in history into ALS. There are more clinical trials going on now than at any time in history for people with ALS. In Hawaii, that's particularly challenging. One of our goals for Hawaii is to establish a research clinic so that when there are clinical trials, those trials can come to Hawaii. Right now, if a person wants to participate in a clinical trial, they have to fly to a clinic on the mainland. And that obviously comes with severe economic and and transportation challenges for someone dealing with ALS. But the research is there the technology that's being developed is extraordinary. When people lose the ability to speak, we have free loans of devices that they can use connected to their computer or separate from a computer so that they can stay in communication. I had a person from Stanford University who's working on a brain interface to for people to be able to just think the words and have them come out. So it's, it's a very robust field, all focused on understanding the disease, being able to detect the disease, and being able to treat the disease. That was Fred Fisher of the Golden West Chapter of the ALS Association, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. For more information on the virtual walk to defeat ALS this Saturday or to participate as part of Team HPR, go to the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. 
And coming up next, a live conversation with HPR President and General Manager Jose Fajardo about his recent ALS diagnosis. Anywhere between 15,000 and 30,000 people living with ALS in Hawaii uh, in the U.S. today, according to John Hopkins Medicine. The Golden West chapter of the ALS Association, which provides services to Hawaii, says there are hundreds living with the disease in our state. One of the recently diagnosed is our own president and general manager, Jose Fajardo. He joins us live in studio this morning to talk about his experience. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Jose, <laughs> and thank you so much for being able to, you know, Come and share your story. Absolutely. You know, this is not an interview I wanted to give. You know, this is not something that, you know, people want to do. But uh, having the position here at Hawaii Public Radio and having the megaphone of HPR allows me have a unique opportunity really to advocate uh, for this disease, uh, for treatment and for science for uh, ALS. Well, you know, just in the time that I've known you, I mean, uh, you know, you're you're fit, you're athletic, <laughs> you know, you run, you work out at the gym. And from what I understand, you're a pretty darn good soccer player. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been active all my life. And uh, when I came to Hawaii, I joined Orange Theory Fitness. I uh, was working out uh, three or four times a week, uh, running uh, trails, the 5Ks and 10Ks up the mountains here in Hawaii, which I loved. Uh, doing lots of hiking uh, in Orlando. I was uh, playing soccer twice a week and boxing. And it was I think it was because I was in tune with my body because I was working out that I was able to notice the very subtle changes that were happening in my body and my muscles in the fall of 2019. I just started to experience a change in my running gait, my walking gait. Uh, I, I was losing my balance at the gym, which I thought was unusual. Uh, and I was having these severe cramps and spasms uh, in my legs, mostly in the morning and the middle of the night. My uh, primary uh, care physician finally um, uh, referred me to a neurologist in uh, spring of 2020. And he right away, after just doing some minor tests with my legs, expressed concerns. And uh, we went right away <clears throat> into a multitude of blood tests um, and uh, EMGs and MRIs and spinal tap because, as Fred Fisher noted, uh, this is a disease that there is no test for. It's an elimination process. So you eliminate everything, and then the only thing that's left is ALS. And in my case, Catherine, I actually tested negative for everything uh, and by in the summer of 2020, uh, I, but uh, it continued to progress um, into my arms, uh, where I was then getting spasms, crampings uh, in my arms, and then I started to have twitching, which is a clear sign of ALS in your muscles. And I went back for another examination, and they did an EMG, which is where they put little needles in all your muscles. It's a very fascinating test, uh, and that's where they found the first uh, clues that uh, I had ALS that was at that point uh, present in my upper limbs and in my lower limbs. And that was uh, March of, of this year. So from fall of 2019 to March of 21, uh, I was experiencing symptoms until they were able to finally say, uh, yeah, it's most likely you have you have ALS. And I, I recall, you know, they were thinking it was something else. Yeah, at first they thought it was paraparesis because the EMGs did not show signs of ALS, and uh, paraparesis is the gradual permanent uh, paralysis of your legs. 
because uh, I wasn't experiencing symptoms beyond my upper my 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 lower limbs, uh, and the EMGs at that point were negative. So I thought I have paraparesis. Okay, I can live with that. That's not that's not fatal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's not the bad stuff. Uh, and I could continue to to live a a fulfilling life. And so w- when the ALS diagnosis came in. Uh, it was a shock to the system. I mean, I, I was prepared because I knew something was not right, but it's a shock, you know, because, you know, right away, the first thing you hear after, you know, the prognosis, the diagnosis that you have ALS is, you know, you have two to five years, perhaps, um, and start getting your affairs in order. And I was like, no, that's not me. <laughs> I'm going to continue living and uh, doing the, what I can to advocate for ALS and living my best life. And, uh, you know, science is getting really, really good. And a lot there's a lot of folks that are living beyond the five years with ALS now. And, uh, and I'm what's known as a slow progressor. Uh, which I hope will continue to, you know, progress slowly so I can live um, as long as I can. Now, uh, you know, this diagnosis, you know, has has changed your life. And and Mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, hearing uh, Mr. Fisher talk about, you know, the research now is robust and there's so much technology and and just uh, different trials going on. Uh, you know, talk about your experience and what you're yeah. doing. Yeah, so right away, my wife Jennifer and I went into a research mode to see what, what can we do. So I'm already taking a, a pill, a Rizolol, which I take twice a day, which helps, uh, it's supposed to slow down the progression. Uh, I, through Team Gleason, uh, which is a foundation out of New Orleans, uh, uh, started off by a NFL former player, Steve Gleason, who developed ALS. Uh, still living with ALS, um, they develop, uh, you know, they set up this foundation to help pay for some technology, including voice banking, which I was able to do, which is your ability to record about 50 sentences. And from that, they're able to computerize your own voice for future use. Uh, and then I also um, started looking into this uh, platform trial called the Healy Platform Trial, which is really a unique uh uh, methodology of taking four or five treatments at the same time and exploring that with ALS patients around the country. And as Fred mentioned, I have to go to Dallas. <laughs> I have to fly to Dallas uh, for that treatment. Uh, but the benefit of that is that you're sharing placebos with four other groups. So you have a 75% chance of getting the active drug instead of the 50% chance in typical trials. So I started that treatment. It's a daily a self-administered shot in my belly, mm, which okay. sounds terrible, but it's easy. It's actually been pretty easy, uh, and I'm doing it, you know, not just for the possibility that it could help me personally, but also the fact that it's going to advance science, whether I have the placebo or not, and that's that's I think ultimately more important. And you know, you talked about the voice banking, so mm-hmm. let's step back a, a little bit mm-hmm. because I just happened to be passing by your office, and you said, "Hey, Catherine, come in here." <laughs> yeah. You know, and and so you were showing me what this does. I guess in the event that you lose your, your right, voice. right, because ALS, the progression of ALS, and my progression started in my lower limbs, and it's progressed to my upper limbs. It's affecting my back. Has not yet impacted my voice or swallowing well, swallowing abilities, uh, but that it, it is a possibility. So voice banking. Um, I recorded the 50 sentences, and then if I lose my voice, I can use a computer to type in sentences, and it will say 
what I'm saying with my voice, but in a computerized voice. Uh, and if I lose my ability uh, to use my arms and hands, which my arms and hands are now weaker than they were, you know, a few months ago, I could use my eyes. It's called eye-glazing technology where my eyeballs will scan a computer screen and type out what I want to say. So at least at least my, my wife and my children and my grandkids will still be able to hear me and my voice. And my voice is my it's my logo, right? Yes. You know, so. <laughs> you know uh you talked about the trials that you're involved in, and uh, you know we talked about the animals at the zoo, you know, getting <laughs> COVID shots, and they're they're not trained for that. But I, mean, I, I imagine you know a shot a day is yeah it's something you've got to kind of like fortify yeah. yourself if, if you're yeah, but shot I, hesitant. Yeah, yeah, but it's fine. You know, I, it, it is what I have to do, um, and it, it's important for me to participate in the trial, not just for me, but for the population of ALS and the future generations of ALS, because science is getting really, really close, I think, uh, to finding a cure. Not maybe a cure, but a, a way to to help slow down the progression or or, or, or hop or stop the progression. And if people want to learn more, they can go to als.org. Uh, my story is on my own webpage called teamjose.com uh, because it's all about learning and and understanding about the disease. And if, if someone can say, "I now know somebody that has ALS," because they know me, then that will maybe. Uh, provide them the the impetus to go learn more about the disease, advocate for it, perhaps contribute to help uh, find a cure for ALS. You know, our community learned a lot about ALS with Peggy Chun, yes, the artist. Yes, right. Yeah. And, I know and her, her son has yes, ALS. Yes, her son Eric, is struggling yeah. with that. But, uh, you know, I, I think, like I said, between the time that we knew about her case uh, and now your diagnosis, you know, like I said, a lot has, a lot has changed. changed. So we learn all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I'm very optimistic. You, you know me. Uh, the <laughs> yes. audience knows me as a very positive person. I'm optimistic that um, there will be a cure. Maybe not in my lifetime, but in the next lifetime for sure. Yeah. Well, keep up your humor. Thank you. <laughs> you were making faces before <laughs> we started this interview. But thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking with HBR President and General Manager Jose Fajardo about his experience living with ALS. To learn more about the disease or what resources are available to those living with ALS in Hawaii, we will post links to the Golden West Chapter of the ALS Association on our website later today. in a name? Well, that was a question that was once posed by William Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet. Today, we were digging into the history of some of the most well-known people with the name Jose Fajardo. You may be familiar with the flautist from Cuba or the professional soccer player from Panama. But how much do you know about HPR's Jose Fajardo? Prior to coming to our station in 2016, he served as president and CEO of WMFE in Orlando. His broadcast career started in Central Texas, where he worked in commercial radio before joining public radio station KNCT. And prior to that, he graduated with his MBA from Rollins College in Florida. But before all that success, where did you grow up, Jose? <laughs> I grew up in beautiful San Juan, Puerto Rico. Okay, there <laughs> you go. You heard it. He grew up on that tropical island of Puerto Rico, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. And congratulations to Michelle from Oahu. You are our winner. 
Do you have an idea uh, for our quiz? Uh, please write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Artists of Hawaii Now, new work from local artists exploring issues of the here and now, on view now, honolulumuseum.org. Aloha, this is Derek Malama, and after 19 years on the air, I'm passing along the reins of Kanikapila Sunday. It's been an honor to share all of this wonderful Hawaiian music with you. But the good news is that Louise Kaililoma King Lanzalotti will be stepping in to host the show. So keep listening every Sunday afternoon from 2 to 4 p.m. right here on HPR One. What are the takeaways from remote learning amidst the pandemic, and how does it apply to Hawaiian immersion classes? HBR's Kubebe Hirishi joins us to talk about it. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, the Hawaiian Language Immersion Distance Learning Program just got off and running this week, so two months into the school year, and um, a small group of about 49 students have already signed up, uh, but they had some sort of, sort of growing pains in getting this off the ground. As we know, uh, at the beginning of this, this school year, distance learning was an option for uh, the English-speaking students. Uh, and it was offered, I should say, to Hawaiian language immersion students as well, but because of the mission of wanting to be immersed in the language, some parents, most parents, uh, were sort of not taking the English speaking option. But there are about 600, as the DOE has said, 600 students signed up for the distance learning um, program on the English side. But we got to speak to Kau'i Sang, director of uh, the DOE's Office of Hawaiian Education, who kind of oversees the Hawaiian Language Immersion Program and who helped kind of spearhead getting the distance learning program off the ground. And she says, you know, some of the main challenges to getting this program going were longstanding challenges for the immersion program in general. A lack of teachers, which we have heard of before, who can speak the language, but who are also um, educated in how to teach. And then we've got the uh, lack of Hawaiian language curriculum available out there. So, for example, with the English uh, distance learning program, uh, the, the DOE did buy about 5,000 licenses with an online curriculum, K-12 Stride, which was already in place. Uh, other schools across the country have used them, so there was this sort of, um, there was already a framework there for Hawaiian language. Not so much, there's really nothing in terms of online curriculum, at least from K-12, to that they can just take mm -hmm. and give to these students. So developing curriculum um, for specific to distance learning was also part of the process that they've been going through over the last two months. So lots of challenges. Lots of challenges. And, you know, when I initially uh, got the idea of hearing about the distance learning program and, and seeing that, hey, we've got all this curriculum that uh, the DOE and a framework for English, why not just translate that? I mean, is that not an option? Could we have done that? And so I reached out uh, to a Hawaiian immersion, uh, immersion parent and graduate, Kanani Nohea Makaimoku, to, to ask that question. You know, why why can't we just translate it? Uh, here's Makaimoku. Uh, he mea nui ke kahu kahu ana 
So she's saying that it's really important in Hawaiian immersion curriculum, it's very different from English, in terms of having that mission of not only reviving the language, but sort of instilling the sense of Hawaiian identity, right, into these students. So the Hawaiian uh, framework or mindset, and that's really embedded in the curriculum that's already in place uh, for in-person learning at Hawaiian immersion programs where you are teaching Hawaiian history, Hawaiian traditions, Hawaiian culture. And if that's not part or the foundation, perhaps, of the English curriculum that's available, that's when parents are saying, okay, we need to develop our own curriculum. So luckily for Sang and, and the Office of uh, Hawaiian Education, they were able to recruit Hawaiian speakers. So this was sort of a, a change in hiring policy, if you will, for uh, the program. And it was specific to, to kind of lifting up the distance learning program. But instead of only allowing sort of uh, licensed teachers and who don't speak Hawaiian, uh, there was this priority to find Hawaiian speakers who maybe, okay, you've got license, good, you've got a degree, okay, maybe you don't have those things, but you can speak Hawaiian, and you uh, graduated from the immersion program, maybe you can be an assistant in this distance learning mm -hmm. program that we're trying to set up. So having that new sort of hiring uh, priority in place really helped a parent uh, to sang. she says, about 75% of the positions that they were recruiting for the distance learning program, in particular for Hawaiian Immersion, uh, had been filled uh, so mm -hmm. far. But there is still room for teachers. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, only about 49 students have signed up. Um, but this, this is only day three. So uh, enrollment is open until the end of next week for any parents who might be interested. Um, but that also goes back and depends on whether or not they have the teachers in place to carry out the distance learning program. I can't believe that Immersion now has been around for 30-some yes. years. Yes, 34 oh years. About 3,300 3, students in the program, uh, 27 schools statewide, K through 12. So there is a demand for this. Making sure they have the teachers and the curriculum in place is always a challenge. Amazing now because, you know, you stop and reflect and you think about how this program, you know, was birthed and then to see the first graduating class of the immersion program. Right. And now uh, many of those uh, students have gone to get their degrees in Hawaiian language and they're teaching or their kids are learning Hawaiian. It, it's really, really pretty impressive. I would say Makaimoku, uh, as a note, is from the first graduating class wow. uh, of the Hawaiian Immersion Program, now a parent and a former teacher of the program as well. So her uh, grasp on the issue is very much insightful. Yes, Imua. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kuvehi. We have been talking to HVR's Kuvehi Reishi. Find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we have to go now. But up tomorrow, we hear uh, about the history of Hawaii's LGBTQ movement. Got a story about coming out you'd like to share? Call the feed, uh, talk back line at 792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And do you want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.